So we are going to jump back into Numbers <clears throat> to the second half of the book. Uh, just before we do, there's two more weeks. So we're doing a fundraiser this month. If you donate $5 or more to the Ministry of Disciple Dojo, you get your name entered to win a copy of this new NIV Cultural Background Study Bible. So it's a really good um, resource, excellent resource to use. I use it every week in preparation, among others. So five bucks, your name's entered. I'll do a drawing at the end of the month and the winner will get that. If you don't win, the good news is your donation is tax deductible. So either way, it's a win-win. The other thing is uh, coming up next year, I mentioned it last week, we are gonna do eight days in the land of the Bible. So this is a trip that uh, the ministry, Disciple Dojo, is organizing where we're going to go spend a couple of days with um, some Christians in Bethlehem, in Jesus' place of his birth. And we're going to go there to learn all about and see what's going on in the Middle East now in terms of the church and the people there in the land, Arab, Jewish, um, international. And then after that, we're going to take uh, about four or five days and see the Holy Land. So we're going to look all over the place. We're going to go up to Galilee. We're going to take a boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, we're going to go down to the Dead Sea. We're going to see um, Jerusalem, the old city. We're going to go, and then we're going to end by going to Jordan and seeing the Transjordan areas that we read all about in Genesis and even some coming up in these next few months. And the whole trip, entire trip, including airfare, $3,500. So that's ridiculously cheap for a trip of this magnitude. If you're interested, you can uh, check the website, you can email to get uh, information about it, or right here, come up afterwards, check the brochure that's got information, and there's spaces limited, 14 spots plus me, so 15 total. Uh, two of those spots are already claimed. So if you want to get in on this, you have between now and uh, May of next year, the end of May. So plenty of time to budget. 3500 bucks out, put a little aside each month. But we love to have you in the Holy Land with us for that trip. So speaking of the Holy Land, let's look at this group of Israelites who are about to move into the Holy Land. We're in the book of Numbers chapter 26. This is the beginning of the second half of the book. This is the second census. So you ever wonder why Numbers is called Numbers? This chapter is why. Chapter 1 started with a list of Numbers. Chapter 26 starts with a list of numbers. This is the second census. The first census was to determine the men of military age who could serve in the alephs, the elephs, the thousands, if you will, from each tribe. <clears throat> Those are military terminology. And so again, that's part of what we talked about at the beginning of this study is the way numbers function in Scripture is not mathematical, but rather strategic and theological. So the numbers in here, scholars are divided on whether they're literal numbers, like thousands, or whether thousands is shorthand for regiments, or groups, or cohorts, or whatever. Um, there's there's t terms that used to have numeric significance that over time could have evolved linguistically into group significance. And the word for thousand, the Hebrew word eleph, actually comes from the word for cow, or bull. And the proposed view, one of the proposed views, was that you would have one bull for every aleph, every group of cattle. And those groups became known as thousands, and this got then 
through its linguistic path ended up being the term used to describe these fighting units in Israel called the thousands. So when you're reading numbers, now is that 100%? We don't know. There's a lot of leeway in Old Testament studies because this is such old material that spans millennia. So what you need to be aware of is there are times in Scripture when numbers are used in ways that if you just use them as arithmetic, they either won't add up right or something else will be off about it. When Paul quotes the last chapter in the New Testament we saw last week, 1 Corinthians 10, he quotes it and it's off by a thousand. And so the question is, okay, what's going on there? Is Paul just doesn't know his scripture? Hardly likely, given his education and his background. Did he just have a slip of the mind? Well, that's kind of what the Holy Spirit should prevent if he's inspiring his authors. Uh, or rather, do the numbers have other significance? Are they rounded up? Are they general statements? Do they, do, in other words, we have to hold with loose hands when you come to biblical numbers, the concept of numbers themselves. This is a pre-arithmetic uh, society. You know, they didn't even have the concept of zero, right? Zero is a much later thing than the time of numbers. So, I mean, just in, the, in terms of how you do, the reason I harp on this is because when it comes to the Old Testament, people love to attach modern scientific mathematical uh, interpretation to ancient Near East passages and then draw some hidden code or math sequence. Some knuckleheads at it again. Have you read it online? Apparently the rapture is going to come on September 23rd. No, because somebody who's quoted as the, 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 I think it was a Yahoo article or something that said, Christian numerologists suggest that that's garbage. There's no such things as Christian numerologists. That's a made-up thing. It's some guy in his basement reading articles online and doing you know, math codes to the Bible. Whenever you see that kind of stuff, don't buy into it. Don't forward the chain email. Don't get excited by the hype. Again, it's, it's like trying to read the phone book for cooking instructions. It's, not, it's two different things. You're not going to get that. So what is the point of these numbers then? If it's not math, if it's not being able to calculate things and blood moons and all this other nonsense that floats around, what is it? Well, simple. It's showing this is the generation that's taking the place of the previous generation who ended in failure. The previous generation died condemned. They died in the last chapter. Their end was as bad as their beginning. They started with the golden calf. They ended with uh, the, the rebellion with the Moabite women and, and the Midianite women. <clears throat> and so that generation's done. They're gone. They're out of the picture, including two-thirds of Israel's leadership in the term of uh, Aaron, Miriam, and Moses. Aaron and Miriam are dead. Moses is the only one left. And other than Moses, the only other two who are left, who left Egypt as adults, are Joshua and Caleb. So there's three people left who came out of Egypt as adults. Now a lot of kids came out of Egypt and a lot of younger ones. The first census, again, was only the people who were 20 years and older. Only the ones who could serve in the military or in the Levitical priesthood. So that generation had 38 years in, the books that we, in, the, in this book that we've read and in Leviticus. Now, they're done. New generation. So this is sort of a new promise. And it's going to start with this new generation like it started with the generation of chapter 1 by numbering them according to their alephs, their thousands, their regiments, their whatever you want to use that term. Whether you want to interpret it literally and think that there are like 2 million people in the desert, okay, maybe. It's not impossible, although it's really unlikely just given logistics. Or whether it's a smaller number and these, quote, thousands are like 
regiments or troops, groupings, uh, then it would be somewhere down closer to like 25,000 or 50,000 or maybe 100,000. We don't know. It doesn't really matter because the point is that God has maintained his faithfulness to this group, Israel, despite the failings of an entire generation of Israelites. And that's key. We'll see that as the genealogy. So, after the plague, chapter 26, verse 1, after the plague, the Lord said to Moses and Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, take a census of the whole Israelite community by families, all those 20 years old or more who are able to serve in the army of Israel. So on the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, across from Jericho, we're going to go there, by the way, next year, so if you want to see this stuff in person, come with me on the trip. There's your cheap plug. Uh, Moses and Eleazar the priest spoke with them and said, take a census of the men 20 years old or more, as the Lord commanded Moses. These were the Israelites who came out of Egypt. The descendants of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel, were through Hanok, the Hanukite clan, through Palu, the Paluite clan, through Hezron, the Hezronite clan, through Carmi, the Carmite clan. These were the clans of Reuben. Those numbered were 43 out of 730, or 43,730. I'm just leaving it untranslated. So here's the first grouping. Now this tells us about how they were organized. They were organized by tribe, 12 tribes, and then within the tribes, they had clans. So these were like the subunits within. And you would identify by your clan, and your clan would be among your tribe. So your tribe would be among Israel. So think of it this way. We are Americans. That's our people. And we are North Carolina Americans. That's our tribe, so to speak. And we are Charlotte, North Carolinians. Okay? That's our clan. Now, it's not a perfect analogy because we're geographical and they're hereditary, but it gives you an idea of the subgroupings. And so these would be how the allegiances would work or how the, they would organize themselves for battle. It gives us another note about a following generation here within that. The son of Palu was Eliab. The sons of Eliab were Nemuel, Dathan, and Abiram. The same Dathan and Abiram were the community officials who rebelled against Moses and Aaron and were among Korah's followers when they rebelled against the Lord. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them along with Korah, whose followers died when the fire devoured the 250 men. And they served as a warning sign. The line of Korah, however, did not die out. This is just a little narrative aside stuck in the middle of a genealogy, but it's a pretty significant one. One, because this whole section of numbers is going to have to do with the land and inheritance. And this is explaining how one of the tribes, or one of the clans actually, got, got whittled down so heavily. And it was through rebellion. And their rebellion, we read about that back in a couple of chapters ago, starting around chapter 16, 17, that period of rebellion. God punished them, and they served as a sign, a warning sign. That term, warning sign, is the word uh, in Hebrew, nes, and it means banner, or standard, or the thing you march under. And so they were in this section of the military census of Israel. They are being held up as a, as a sign, as a standard, as a banner, not for what you should be, but for exactly what you should not be. They become the poster children for rebelling against God and what happens when you openly, wantonly, high-handedly rebel against God. So they're included in this genealogy to show that, yes, we're looking forward to the future, but we're also remembering the past good and bad. And that serves as a warning sign. So, then it goes on. <clears throat> Verse 12, the descendants of Simeon by their clans 
were through Nimuel, the Nimuelite clan, through Yaman, the Yamanite clan, through Yachin, the Yachinite clan, through Zerah, the Zerahite clan, through Shal, the Shalite clan. These were the sons of Simeon. There were 22 out of 200 men. So these first two numbers, these first two tribes, Reuben and Simeon, the firstborn, both of them have experienced a drop in numbers of fighting men from the previous census. The first census for uh, Reuben was 46,500. Now it's 43,730. There's a drop. Second one for Simeon, it was originally 59,300. Now it's down to 22,200. Huge drop. All right, so we're seeing that even within the, the, the overall size of Israel is going to remain relatively the same, but certain tribes bore the brunt of these rebellions and bore the brunt of these punishments and the, during that first generation. Then it goes on, the descendants of Gad by their clans were through Zephon, the Zephonite clan, through Haggai, the Haggite clan, through Shuni, the Shunite clan, through Ozni, the Oznite clan, through Eri, the Erite clan, through Arodi, the Erodite clan, through Areli, the Arelite clan. These were the clans of Gad, whose numbers were 40 LF 500. And that's down slightly from 45 LF 680 in the first chapter. So then it goes on, verse 19, another little narrative since things stuck in the middle. Ur and Onan were sons of Judah, but they died in Canaan. Why is that put in there randomly? You go all the way back to Genesis, to the account of Ur and Onan. They were wicked in the eyes of the Lord, and it says God put them to death. And then there, the third in line was the one who ended up marrying and through some trickery with Judah and some, some uh, X-rated behavior, <laughs> ended up fathering the line of his what would be his grandchildren. So go back in Genesis if you want to catch that. But the point is that there's some, this is the line of Judah, but there's some skeletons in their closet. Even though this is the promised line, this is the line through whom Ruth, David, uh, ultimately Jesus, they're all going to be in this line. This is going to be the line. This is the one who the star is going to come out of, rise out of Jacob. The scepter will not depart from Judah. Like, this is the promised line. And it starts off with a little note of, again, looking back at the past as a reminder, as a warning. Then it goes on to say, the descendants of Judah by their clans were through Shelah, the Shelite clan, through Perez, the Perizzite clan. That's the one that would go on to be the line of Ruth and Obed and Jesse and David and Jesus through Zerah, the Zerite clan. The descendants of Perez were through Hezron, the Hezronite clan, through Hamel, the Hamelite clan. These were the clans of Judah. Those numbers were 76 out of 500. This is up now. This is the first clan who's, first tribe who's actually had an increase in Judah. So we're already starting to see maybe some of that blessing of the Judah tribe, the royal tribe, as it will come to be. The descendants of Issachar by their clans were through Tola, the Tolite clan, through Pua, the Puite clan, through Yashub, the Yashub clan, through Shimron, the Shimronite clan, these were the clans of Issachar. Those numbered were 64 out of 300. That's up from 54, 500 in the first census. Then the descendants of Zebulun by their clans, through Sarad, the Saradite clan, through Elon, the Elonite clan, through Yahil, the Yahilite clan, these were the clans of Zebulun, whose number were 60 out of 500. This is up from 57,400. So these three right in a row now, it's not all bad. They've not all diminished. Some have actually increased during this wilderness wandering. The descendants of Joseph by their clans through Manasseh and Ephraim were, and this is this if you're a, a 
genealogy nerd and you're comparing the first to the census, this is the number, the order's reversed. In the first census, uh, Ephraim was numbered first and then Manasseh, but now they reverse it, probably because one has a, well, they both increase, um, or excuse me, probably because one increases and one decreases. So the descendants of Manasseh through Machir, the Machirite clan, Machir was the father of Gilead. Through Gilead, the Gileadite clan, these were the descendants of Gilead. Through Yezer, the Yezerite clan, through Helic, the Helicite clan, through Asriel, the Asrielite clan, through Shechem, the Shechemite clan, through Shemida, the Shemidaite clan, through Hefer, the Heferite clan. Zelophehad, son of Hefer, had two sons. He had no sons. He had only daughters, whose names were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tirzah. These were the clans of Manasseh. Those numbered were 52 LF 700. That's a huge increase. This is the highest increase of this tribe. That's why there's so many of these clans, even down to the next generation. Little aside, there's one of these folks. He didn't have any sons, but he had five daughters. We're going to find out those five daughters, more about them in the next chapter, and then the book is going to end with what happens with them. But it's, very, it's odd when women are included in military census because this is for fighting men and for inheritance, property inheritance. And yet, right here, we've got five, five women that are included in this Israelite military inheritance census. So already, God is doing something different in Israel than he would do in the rest of the ancient world, or that would be the norm in the rest of the ancient world. Names will pop up, and they're not always bad when, it, when it's out of the ordinary. It's not always as a warning. Sometimes it's as a blessing. But then it goes on to say, these were the descendants of Ephraim by their clans. Through Shethela, the Shethelahite clan, through Becker, the Beckerite clan, through Tahan, the Tahanite clan, these were the descendants of Shethela, through Aaron, the Aaronite clan. These were the clans of Ephraim, whose number were 32 out of 500. That's down from the 40,500 in the first census. So possibly that's why they were switched in their order. Then the descendants of Benjamin by their clans, through Bela, the Belaite clan, through Ashbel, the Ashbelite clan, through Ahiram, the Hiramite clan, through Shufam, the Shufamite clan, through Hufam, the Hufamite clan. The descendants of Bela and Ard and Naaman are, through Ard, the Ardite clan, through Naaman, the Naamanite clan. These are the clans of Benjamin, whose numbered were 45 out of 600. That's an increase from the 35,000 in the first census. These were descendants of Dan by their clans, through Shuham, the Shuhamite clan. Period. That's it. Sorry, Dan. You're tiny. Uh, these were the clans of Dan. All, the, all of them were Shuhamite clans, and those numbered were 64 LF 400. Dan had a downward spiral, by the way. Dan is always seen as something of a black sheep in the family in terms of the tribes and how they work out. In fact, in the end, in Revelation, when God, John sees a vision of all of the people of God, but they're pictured as the Israel military census, Dan is not in that list. All the other tribes are listed, and Levi's included instead of Dan. So Dan, if you trace it through, Dan had kind of a downward trajectory uh, in the book of Judges and then throughout the rest of history. So research that, if you will. It's interesting. Then, uh, wrapping it up, the descendants of Asher by their clans were through Imna, the Imnite clan, through Ishvi, the Ishvite clan, through Berea, the Bereite clan, and the, through the descendants of Berea, through Heber, the Heberite clan, through Malkiel, the Malkiite clan. Asher had a daughter named Sarah. These were the clans of Asher. Those numbered were 53 out of 400. That's an increase. Now here's another side note. Asher had a daughter named Sarah. Again, why is she listed in the census? This is one of those interesting things about Scripture that this is all we know of her. She's never mentioned again. 
Maybe she was mentioned in some of the other ancient books in Israel, like the records of the kings of Israel or, or something. But it's one of those tantalizing glimpses that we're just teased with. We know nothing else about her. But whatever she did or whoever she was or whatever her standing, it was important enough for her to be included in this official military inheritance census. So again, it's just one of those, the Bible gives us everything we need, tells us everything we need to know, but it doesn't tell us everything we want to know. And this is a case of that. Like, what's her story? Where did she come from? Now, I'm sure somebody like Prayer of Jabez, they'll just take this verse and write a book about it and turn it into a little cottage industry. But it's all speculative. We don't know anything about her other than she was included. Finishing up, the descendants of Naphtali by their clans. Through Yaziel, the Yazilite clan. Through Guni, the Gunite clan. Through Yezer, the Yezerite clan. Through Shilam, the Shilmite clan. These were the clans of Naphtali, whose number were 45 out of 400. And that's down from 53, 400 in the first census. So the total number of men of Israel was 601 out of 730. And that is down by only about 1,500 people from the first census. Now, just pausing to take that into account, that's huge. Think about what we've read in these previous chapters. Think about what we've read, and this is where you get to the point. What's the point of this genealogy? Besides pronouncing these funny names, what does it matter? Well, one of the things that it matters for is inheritance rights and how they separate the land, which is going to immediately come into play. But theologically, for us, because we aren't getting any land in the Middle East, what does this have to do with us? It lets us know that despite the rebellion, 40 years of wandering, complaining, outright turning against God, rejecting the covenant in the incident in the very last chapter. Despite that, the entire generation wiped out, yet Israel as a whole only decreased their fighting men by 1,500 or, or an LF 500, whatever number that is. That's huge because, again, think about what Bilaam prophesied over Israel, that they would increase, that they would be fruitful. The most rebellious generation thus far in Israel's history, and it'll be matched later by the time of the Assyrian and the Babylonian invasions, but up to this point and for a long time, the most rebellious generation who rejected God completely died off. Still, the people of Israel were pretty much the same size in terms of their fighting force. God maintained His faithfulness to the people, but excluded, cut off, and condemned the persons who rebelled against Him. And that's that whole dynamic we see at play that, I, that, that I've talked about before, how we view salvation. God's people were not going to be stopped. Bilaam's prophecies held true 100%. They were sure. But whether the persons within His people got to partake in those promises was up to their response to God in either obedience or rebellion. Even after they were saved coming out of Egypt, which is how the language of salvation even comes to be in the first place. Remember, those of you that were here for Exodus, that's where the whole term getting saved came from. The Exodus. Israel was saved out of Egypt. But getting saved is the beginning, not the end. You can get saved Congratulations. You came forward at a Billy Graham crusade. Great. You said the sinner's prayer at youth camp. Awesome. You, whatever it is. You had a vision. You had a dream. You gave your life to the Lord. Great. That's the beginning. That's not the end. You don't get a ticket punched to get to heaven at salvation. You get a relationship 
and a covenant responsibility that God enables you to keep through abiding in Him. Unlike in this covenant. That's the promise of the new covenant is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit thing. They didn't have that. There they were being led by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire externally. New covenant, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, Joel 2, Hosea, they promised God would put it in you, His Spirit, and would move us to follow His decrees, would give us the ability to walk with Him in obedience. And so that's the disjunctive nature of the New Covenant, but the conjunctive nature of the New Covenant, the part that, that is the same, is this notion of salvation's the beginning. The time in the desert is when you're proven faithful or unfaithful. The time in the desert while we're wandering, and remember of the very first lesson of this study on numbers, we looked at how the New Testament authors refer to the Israel in the wilderness. They refer to the book of Numbers as an example for believers in the world. That's what it is. It's an example for us. As we're in this world, we are in the wilderness. We have not, we've, been, we've been brought out of Egypt, salvation, but we're not yet in Canaan. We're not yet in the promised land, which is new heavens, new earth. We're in that in-between stage. And so the promise for God's people is there. That's why you know, Jesus could say, on this rock I'll build my church, the gates of hell won't prevail against it. He could say with 100% confidence, the church will not fail. But he could warn his disciples individually and collectively, hey, watch out for false teachers that they don't lead you astray. And Paul could write, and Peter could write, and Jude, Jesus' own half-brother, they would write the same things. Don't be led astray. Well, how can we be led astray if it's certain that the church is going to win? Because it's not certain that you'll be part of that winning if you choose to turn away from your covenant relationship. And so, it's this, to me, it's this numbers and forms gives us a, 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 a matrix through which to look at our salvation, and even our New Testament life as followers of Jesus. Because followers of Jesus are the continuation, not the replacement, the continuation of God's covenant people just under the New Covenant. So that's where we are as we look at this. So we'll look next week. We'll finish up. This is a long chapter because it had two genealogies. It's going to do one more with the Levites. And, uh, and then it's going to give a recap and then we'll move into getting ready now. This new generation, they're ready, they're reordered, they're re-priested, so to speak. Now they're going to get ready to, okay, what's before us before we enter this land? But we're out of time. If you have questions about the trip next year or you're interested in it, uh, come take a look. If you want to donate, possibly win a Bible, great. Otherwise, you're supporting this ministry. And lastly, uh, we always ask, Tips, donations today, they go straight to the kitchen staff as a way of thanking them for this meal that they provide each week. So have a great week and we'll see you next time.